and welcome to Dress Fancy, the podcast about fashion, fantasy, and fancy dress. I'm Lucy Clayton, and I'm here with cultural historian Dr. Benjamin Wilde to discuss a subject that's very close to our hearts, but one which has been underrepresented in much writing and research about fashion and costume history. This is surprising when you think about the rich, beautiful, and creative ways we use dressing up to express ourselves, push a message, or sometimes to simply celebrate. And today's theme is all about celebration. I am personally borderline hysterical with excitement because we are talking about jewellery, serious jewellery. Specifically, we're looking at some of the most impressive statement pieces from three of the most extravagant society balls on record. And I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Levi Higgs, Levi is a New York City-based decorative arts and design historian specialising in jewellery. He's an archivist for the American jewellery house David Webb, writes a decorative arts and jewellery column for the Daily Beast, and he chronicles his glittering day-to-day on his Instagram account, at Levi underscore Higgs, which, I have to say, is a magical place. He's our expert voice for today, and if there is a better subject to be an expert on, then I have certainly never heard of it. Now, you may notice our sound quality is different to our usual. We are Skyping Levi in from New York, so our sound is less studio than usual in this episode. Welcome, Levi, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And I just want to say thank you to you both for making me a true fancy dress-aholic, which you have. (laughs) Bless you. (laughs) Okay, so in previous episodes, we have thought about some of the high society glittering fancy dress occasions but a lot of these have been 19th century we looked at the Devonshire ball in our first series and more recently have looked at the Romanov ball in 1903 so just creeping into the 20th century what we're going to do today though for our festive extravaganza is look at three of the most opulent and stupendous costume balls that we can conjure with so As to why we've chosen them, I should say that there's obviously a very, very clear link to our purloined patron saint, Cecil Beaton, because he was here at each of these events. So as ever, his spirit sort of infuses. (laughs) um, Absolutely, absolutely. So our first foray on our festive trip is the Bastique Ball, which was held in Venice in 1951. Once we've had that little um, shenanigan, we then travel to New York and joined Truman Capote for his black and white ball, which was celebrated in November of 1966. And then, changing costume for the third and final time, we are going to Paris, so truly the most extraordinary Christmas party you could think of, and joining the Rothschilds for their surrealist ball in 1971. So three costume changes, and few airplanes. Lucy, do you think you're up for it? Well, as always, I mean, raring to go. As always, you can follow the images that accompany this conversation on our Instagram feed. And I I also want to make it clear that Santa, we know to be a big fan of this podcast. So it is, in fact, worth bearing that in mind as you listen, maybe with a pen in hand for drafting that jewellery-based Christmas list. I think that's a very good idea. (laughs) Then set the scene for our first social So our first jaunt is to Venice. And we are joining the multi-millionaire Carlos de Bastigi on the 3rd of September for a bal costume that ostensibly he is holding to celebrate the opening of the Palazzo Labia. So this is a wonderful sort of Venetian house. House is actually, I think, understating enormously. Palace. Palace, Palace <laughs> I think, is probably better, which he's bought 
for five hundred thousand dollars. Now, I'm going to put this into some figures. As we know, listeners from previous episodes, I do like to. You love a bit of maths. I'm, I'm trying actually. I, I was never a good maths student, so <laughs> I'm hoping that Mrs. Burgess is out there listening to us <laughs> and knows that I, I'm trying. This is even more impressive because I've done conversions from dollars into pounds. Oh, look at you! So I know. Get me. <laughs> so. In 1948, he buys the Platz Labia for $500,000, which I think is about $50 million oh, in today's money. Yikes. No, 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 no. You, we've just started with the figures, okay? <laughs> he then spends a further $750,000 redecorating it, which is about £23 million pounds in today's money. Oh, my goodness. And this ball that he is hosting is if we put it into today's figures, and again, listen, if you're thinking of party planning and, and the budget to set, <laughs> how's about this? £624,000. Yes, but that's a bargain in comparison to the outlay on the building and all sorts of things. Oh, absolutely. So actually, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think Completely it's, justifiable, yeah, I think. I think so. <laughs> and I'm sure our listeners will go along with that. Yeah. But I think what's interesting is at the time, people didn't think that. We're in 1951. The world is still recovering from the ravages of the Second World War. In Britain, wartime rationing doesn't actually stop until 1954. Mm. So all of these sort of jet setters, we've got loads of people. We've got Orson Welles. We've got, as I've said, Cecil Beaton. We've got the Dalis. We've got Christian Dior, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. So, you know, the jet set in the 1950s, them all coming to Venice to have this big sort of knees up to celebrate the opening of this wonderful palace. Slightly controversial, I think, in some respects. Because at home, everyone's still on spam. I, I think so. Yeah, no, most of, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think. But we do have some quite extraordinary costumes and people that go along with these wonderful interiors that the Count has constructed. And I think for me, which really sort of sets the scene in terms of the exoticism of the evening, the opulence, and also in some ways the opprobrium that the event attracts, is the outfit of Daisy Fellows. She arrived dressed as the Queen of Africa, which I think is quite suitable, and a costume that was inspired by various frescoes in the restored palace that were designed by Giambattista Tipolo. So again, if you're going to one of these extraordinary events, I think coordinating your costume with the decor, I think that's mm. a nice touch. Mm. I'm sure the host was appreciative of that. So in, in terms of thinking about the glorious visage that Daisy Fellows, I suppose, arrives as. Because actually arrival is quite important, oh, it really isn't is. it, in, in this party? It's not just like you stump up, you jump out of the cab, because obviously we're in Venice. Yeah. And of the small amount of video that survives, yeah. it's the sort of this fleet of it, people it arriving yeah. uh, up the canal. Mm. And it's amazing watching yeah. it. also really hard to disembark <laughs> off a boat in full rig. Costume yeah, and, and, and I think with what both... <laughs> But Daisy Fellows, I think, has the best attitude here because she drives, I don't know, do you drive no steer? What's the verb for a boat? I don't know. I don't, I don't do know. it. Whatever. Whatever Punt. Boat. Punt. <laughs> anyway, None of us know. <laughs> but she steers it. She commands it into the Venetian harbour. And as she's disembarking, that's the correct verb there, the um, sort of captain says, well, what are you doing? You can't leave this sort of vessel, you know, just moored up or whatever. But she just strides off and just leaves it there. Oh. Um, and that sort of heroic, sort of defiant character, I think, is reflected in her arrival, as you say, as the Queen of Africa, but also, and more importantly, the jewellery that she is wearing. So, Levi, if I've sort of set the scene, tell us about the gorgeous delights that she's wearing. You certainly have. Well, 
what's so interesting to me is that if she's referencing the interiors of this this palace palazzo in her costume and she's supposed to be the queen of africa what's interesting to me is that she's actually wearing a hindu inspired necklace which mm-hmm. is obviously from india and not quite the right tone that she wants <laughs> to be striking but it's one of the most important cartier necklaces of the tutti frutti style ever that they've ever produced it was made in 1936 cartier really got into carved rubies and emeralds from india around 1911 when they started making jewelry for the maharajas they would go to india and they were supposed to be making parisian inspired jewels with the stones that the maharajas already had so thus when they came back to europe cartier really took that sensibility with them and brought it to sort of the art deco era of you know egyptian inspired things and indian inspired things and orientalizing with motifs mm. from china and japan so it really was part of that huge moment and so daisy fellows she had purchased multiple pieces from cartier before in the 20s early 30s and for this huge necklace that she had in th- 1936 it was made up of all these stones that she had remixed to make this one grand necklace from these multiple pieces she had do you think that's a kind of the idea then it's the sort of superficiality so you've got the sort of multicolored stones that sort of almost references as i said in a very superficial way the sort of resources the luxury that was as often associated with africa even though as you say this has got really nothing to do with africa at all right the fact that she can reach into her grab bag of the amazing jewels that she had and just sort of retool them for her own purposes because she was really interested in like reinventing herself. I mean, wasn't there some story about her having a nose job with no anesthetic or something? <laughs> well, yeah, no, I think that's of that. I mean, that, she was that, one that, of the like most see, yeah. daring fashion plates of the 20th century, oh, she was, wasn't yeah. she? So, I mean, there is creatively something very interesting about saying I'm not starting from scratch. I'm yeah. taking these things and I'm making something new from mm. them. And we'll go on I think to talk about the relationship between identity and jewelry and how that kind yeah, of no, how those two things become sometimes inseparable. Mm. It's interesting in Cecil Beaton's diaries in the portraits and profiles book that I'm holding in my hand now he talks about Daisy Fellows as a, as a subject and as a friend and her relationship between clothes and jewelry which I thought was really interesting and is kind of relevant to what we're talking about how you fashion mm. an identity with what you have so it says here enjoyed making other women appear foolish would wear plain linen dresses when everyone else was dressed to kill these linen suits simple in tailoring and often identical in shape were ordered in dozens of different colors and complemented by barbaric jewels handcuffs of emeralds necklets of indian stones or conch shells of diamonds she even wore jewelry with her beach suits oh wow that's what to aim for yeah <laughs> she was so, a huge cartier customer wasn't she she was and you know so she got this necklace in 1936 that this ball isn't until 51 right and i read that she only wore it a few times publicly that there's a photo of her by Cecil Beaton of her wearing it famously that Cartier continually uses in their books and publications but really this is like one of the public times that you see her out and about in it and it was interesting because actual indian jewelry is mostly about rubies and emeralds but this necklace heavily uses carved sapphires as well so once again it's sort of missing this authentic note but i don't think it mattered i think it was about sort of the opulence of it to, to what extent in terms of fellow's relationship with cartier to what extent do you think or, or indeed with any of cartier's customers there is a sense that daisy fellow's here is providing the steer or would daisy fellow's just sort of go along roughly say i want something that approximates 
your designs from the sort of 2D, 3D collection, but how you interpret it is up to you. I mean, in other words, to what extent do we actually see Daisy Fellows reflected in this piece of jewellery, if that makes sense? So she had these earlier pieces, right? She had the bracelet and and a necklace that got retooled. And she was really interested in sort of the authentic, uh, like it had a silk cord that tied at the back, which is how actual Indian jewellery works. So maybe she's disregarding the coloured stones, but she wanted to actually perform as if it were a real Indian jewel. But then after her death in 1962, her daughter totally changes the necklace. She moves these two huge carved sapphires from the bottom to make a clasp. She extends it a little longer than it was, gets rid of the silk cord. And that's how Cartier currently owns it because they bought it at auction yeah. in Geneva in 1991 for over $2,600,000. Well, it's a bargain in the grand scheme of things. I love total bargain. And for one of the most important pieces of tutti frutti jewelry, then, you know, yes, that makes sense for that price. But I think that the records that Cartier has, at least from what I've read and seen, it seems that it was a complete special order. So usually in that case, the client is dictating what they want done. So I would imagine that her hand was very present in picking out what was going to be done with this piece because she discarded some stones. There were turquoise beads in her previous pieces that weren't used for the necklace. So I would imagine she gets to really have full say of how she wants it done. You think of Cartier in that instance more as a workshop. Yes. As opposed to a designer. What I'm thinking of now is Zarina Alexandra and sort of Fabergé on hand to provide guidance with the the board. But I'm also thinking if this was obviously a necklace that was made for fellows in 36, it's just under 20 years that she's now wearing it again. I wonder if it's sort of a case of I've decided I'm going as the sort of queen of Africa. What have I got that's sort of easily to hand? Mm. Oh, I haven't worn this for a while. So, (laughs) you know, as you do. Dust that Uh, off. (laughs) But, you know, so the anachronism in a sense, this isn't obviously an item of jewellery that has been designed for this ball, which is slightly disappointing. That might explain the anachronism in some ways, possibly. I think the persona of a piece of jewelry is really important. And for her to hold that piece so dear and know that it's an emblem of herself that she gets to bring into this party, that's interesting. I suppose what's also interesting is this relationship between the customer or client and the jeweler is also, I suppose, reflected in the presence of another guest, namely Fulco Duc de Verdura, who frequents many of the 20th century balls, those that we're talking about and those others besides that many will have heard about. What you often get at these sort of lavish festivities are these sort of high artisans and crafters, because... When you think of a fancy dress ball, it is this connection, it is the sort of elision of all of these wonderful, beautiful, highly skilled crafts that, that are coming together. Mm-hmm. And so I think with Adura, it, it's not, and maybe even follows to an extent, this isn't solely about sort of showing off and showing your wealth or, or trying to sort of snag new customers. But it is also just, I think, a wonderful example of how a fancy dress of this nature can provide connections between the different artistic skills, but also people who have an affinity with the arts. And this idea that's often invoked with Paul's likeness of the Gesamtkunstwerk, so the total artwork, something that appeals to like, all of the senses. It's very visual, I suppose, the, the sounds of all the sort of clothes and the jewellery rustling against each other. So bringing together these multiple disciplines seems, I think, to make sense. What's so interesting to me about Verdura is that he was at this party but that's continued to be a part of 
the company's sort of messaging. Just this this holiday season, I got in the mail Verdura's catalog, and it's called House Party Foco and Friends at Play. And it it's all about snapshots from the Verdura archive of he and his friends, you know, at various parties throughout his life, and sort of positioning the jewelry that the company's selling now as accessories to that party. So you know, it's full circle contemporary moment of... It's amazing. It's yeah. also, I think, says something about the timelessness of jewellery mm. versus clothes. You know, there's something about jewellery's ability to survive generation yes. after generation, as you said about Daisy Fellows' daughter reworking things and it, and then sort of tending to stay in families. There is a kind of continuum mm. and tradition that we often see disrupted when it's you know you don't necessarily inherit a whole wardrobe or you don't these things aren't looked after as well that's an interesting juxtaposition of costume being you know especially for these grand parties you know that can never happen again in the way that they had happened you wear one costume one time at this event you're seen you're photographed it's done it can never happen again or if you're seen wearing it it's sort of strange to be out in the same costume from this iconic moment but a jewel never gets thrown away or you want to get the mileage out of your jewelry you want to wear it and have it your whole life and pass it on even so I don't know costume can feel to me forgive me if this is offensive in any way but like a one and done where jewelry endures I think that's one of the reasons I love fancy dress so much and in fact I think this is relevant to each of these three occasions when you look back at the photographs of now I think what's so charming about it is that combination of high glamour, high octane, high value in the jewellery and, you know, a paper crown, a cheap (laughs) mask, you know, Truman Capote wearing a mask from, there was, you know, a a couple of dollars or whatever from F.A.O. Schwartz. Because creatively, I think the stylist within all of us is allowed the most extreme level of play in that. And that's, for me, really remarkable because I don't think there are apart from costume parties and costume balls I don't think there's any other kind of no. occasion in adult life where you get to do that no. really but I think that's also what we said before and again advice from Cecil Beaton that you want to almost dress down yeah because that shows your kind of skill it shows the more playful side of your character that these yeah. events channel yes rather- and in fact we were talking about the cover of time magazine, yes yeah using that exact point for exactly so this is Jean Tierney who is at the Bastille Ball, and she became kind of quite famous because to this really expensive party, she is wearing a gown that cost, you know, in today's money, maybe a hundred quid. Yeah. So she's effectively high street. Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. She's wearing this sort of wonderful sort of gingham frock, holding a wicker basket full of fruit and vegetables. And she just looks absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And of course, and we'll come on to talk about overdone or overblown. Yes, yeah. No, pointing at no one, Elizabeth Taylor. But, um, you know, actually what's interesting is when you look at that photograph of her, the sort of simplicity, at the the pastoral elegance of it is kind of, it sort of emphasises youth and, you know, freshness in a way that, again, when we were looking at the Devonshire ball, there was that mm. contrast between, you know, the Duchess of Devonshire, her outfit being entirely about power and very over the top, and then other people at that ball going for the sort of flimsy muslin end of the spectrum that allowed them just to say, I'm young and hot, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not, I, I, and not in so many words. So, yeah, the next entertainment that we're going to talk about, I think very much developing a strand of quite conspicuous self-promotion. The black and white ball that Truman Capote hosts in November 1966. Ostensibly, 
is organised to, I suppose in some ways, console, as much as any of these grand events can console anyone, Kay Graham, following the death of her husband through suicide. Kay Graham, of course, the president of the Washington Post and Newsweek. But I think the main reason that Capote is hosting this ball is to celebrate himself and more specifically the publication, which is to come later, In Cold Blood. And this is the sort of, I was going to say the great book of Capote's career. In some ways, of course, it's also the only one, which <laughs> follows the, sorry, slightly bitchy there. Um, I'm already beginning to channel Cecil Beaton. So that's why he's obviously our patron saint. But this book that fictionalises in some ways, but also, of course, conveys the full horror of the murder of a Kansas family, the Cutters, and the New York Times writing about this ball, because, of course, everybody is talking about it, which again is what Capote wanted, makes the point that in the lead up to the ball, in the lead up to the publication of this book, Capote has earned something like $14.80 for each of the book's 135,000 words. Now, such is my fear of Mrs. Burgess, but again, I've done some mathematical wizardry. So in pounds, this is something like 29 pounds earned for each of his book's words. There's 135,000. So that means he's making about 3.9 million. Is that the same deal that you have with your publisher then? Um, I think I need to renegotiate, actually. Um, <laughs> but I've got either. something for the next book, so th this is great. This you is... should just use that as a, I think as I a should. basis. Yeah. In terms of the sort of gung-ho levels of being his best oh, yeah. advertiser, yeah. you know, it was a very much a literary moment, wasn't it? He kind of claimed that it was the first ever non-fiction novel, which yeah. isn't actually true, but certainly helped fuel the fire of, of press. You know, absolutely. I mean, it, it is completely brazen. And he adds to that, as I said, with hosting this ball. And in the months before it, he has this sort of almost now sort of legendary black book where he's writing the names of the people that he's going to invite and more cruelly and sort of damningly removing the names of people when he changes his mind. And the book, <laughs> book, book survives and you can see these sort of scribblings and crossings out within it. Of course, it demonstrates sort of great pains that he's going to, to create exactly the right sort of mood, exactly the right feeling for when his book hits. Cecil Beaton, as we've said, was at this ball. And Cecil Beaton is a friend, frenemy, might be possibly a little <laughs> bit closer to the truth of Truman Capote. And I think there's a interesting quotation that Beaton confides in his diary about this book launch, which essentially the ball is. And I think it conveys possibly the atmosphere and reception of this lavish event. So Beaton says as follows, I will be going to Truman's £10,000 party, which is about 176,000 in today's stuff. <laughs> Sorry, all these little factoids. Um, so I will be going to Truman's party. About this, I have mixed feelings. I would feel that I had missed quite an event if I didn't go, but I know I will be angry. It seems to me such a terrible waste of money to spend so much in one evening. After six hours, he will have nothing to see for his cheque except a lot of press clippings. The foolishness of spending so much time organising the party is something for a younger man or a worthless woman to indulge in if they have social ambitions. Such a misogynist. And we'll hear more from We'll that. hear more on that later as I get crosser and crosser. <laughs> I may have to demote him oh my goodness. from the role of patron. I'm now listening to sort of thunderbolts. It's, it's yes. striking the um, fancy dress towers. I might speak. swap him for someone. Ooh. I'm, well, I'll come back to you on that. I didn't expect this controversy no, to be No, sorry. Honest. It's just that it's funny, isn't it? 
the archness I don't mind. I think it's a really interesting social commentary. Yeah. It always feels very of its time, which I think is really interesting. And I really love all of that sort of diaried Venom. Venom, exactly. <laughs> Venom. What is interesting is to be so critical, particularly yeah. of a party. I mean, Beaton wouldn't have had a career no. without people exactly. prepared to give parties of yeah. that nature. So to sort of say that it's a terrible waste of money. When, particularly in this instance, Capote proves entirely that that's not yeah. the case, given that it's, you know, just, as you say, a thinly disguised book laundry. Yeah. And, and, and yes, he does get lots of press clippings, but that's exactly what he that's, wants. So it served as part that, that's the vehicle through which, yeah, he can sell the book and, of course, himself. And the other thing I think it's important to say about this event, because lots lives on in the memory, yeah. for, in sort of popular consciousness about this event. You know, it's often copied as a yes, theme. Yes, it is, yeah. My sister's 21st birthday in Salisbury. Similar oh, yeah. okay. Everyone wore black and white, but Hershey wore red. That was good. Well, I think that's also the problem in, in, in the sense that this is in itself in 1966 a copy because it's essentially a copy of or imitating perhaps black ascot, but also the black and white scene in My Fair Lady, which right. of course was Cecil Beaton. Of course. So, so I would imagine that's itself. probably what he's slightly annoyed about. Right. But then, oh, I see. So he's being territorial about I think so. Okay. But what, I, what I'm I just think, trying to, I'm just trying to sort of, you know, kind of <laughs> keep him as our patron saint. I'm making an argument okay, for okay. him here. But what I do think is worth remembering is that actually today, guests, and your point about the guest list and people being in or out, mm. it was obviously used as a very divisive thing at the yes, time. Yes. But actually we're used now to occasions, either society occasions or Hollywood occasions, or whatever, as being a complete mix of individuals yes. from all different walks of life. But at the time, that still wasn't really happening, was it? So it was one of the first occasions where, in the book, there's lots of crossings out and, and, and that's fine, you know, but there's sort of the construct of that guest list is actually significant. It's not just about being tough with people or, no. or there is something quite new happening which is to say that you know here's Frank Sinatra yes. next to you know and that didn't really happen as much no. then people lived more in their individual yeah. social niches and I think that's true because Capote does invite members from Kansas that have helped him so the sort of police detective and his wife I think and these become in a sense the stars of the show because American society is just so curious about these I mean, I think they almost perceive them as sort of country yokels and bumpkins. You know, who are, who are these mm. people in the sort of big city of New York? And again, I think that is done deliberately to make it look as though Capote is the great arbiter bringing these two worlds together, which, of course, he's doing through his new form of fiction. And in promoting that new form of fiction, I mean, I rewatched the Capote movie with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, that's brilliant, yeah. Because I'd not seen it for a really long time. I'd kind of forgotten the whole thing and... And in fact, I've forgotten what an incredible book mm, in Cold Blood it is. Really actually, is yeah. Really startling. And what for me was really interesting in sort of remembering that is that actually that book as a piece of writing is the most kind of taught and almost aggressively masculine. Yes, it is yes. very controlled writing. And it's almost the opposite of when we think about Truman Capote as a personality. Mm. He is flamboyant and, you know, kind of mischievous. Yeah. And it's interesting that that book is, in fact, you know, on the page, is so far from that mm. persona. Mm. And the other thing that I'd completely forgotten about, and this is a master craftsman and a master advertiser at work, really, because the Avedon portraits of the criminals in the book, the idea of him orchestrating that situation yes. is so outrageous. Yeah, no, I hadn't and those portraits, that. looking at them now, I mean, mm. they are just, well, blood chilling. Yes, um, I think that's, yeah. And of course, also, 
very, very stylish. It's Richard mm. Avedon. <laughs> You're yeah, amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so I think, you know, if you need no other example of someone who mm. understands that image making is at the heart of his brand, that's kind of, for me, I'd just forgotten that that mm. had even happened. Mm. I mean, how did that no, happen? No, that is true. Yeah. But I think it also, I mean, forgotten about it because that wasn't necessarily something that was, as far as I'm aware, really focused on at the time. No, I don't think so. I don't know. No, I don't know, but yeah, I but, I mean, I'm not aware get it now. of it. Can no. you imagine if someone was on death row and you're like, right, well, what I'm going to do is... It's line at Annie Limerick or something <laughs> like that. It's just... Yeah, wow. anyway. But I, I think that can happen in a sense, because as much as Capote is the architect of this event, there are enough people who can then come along and also see this as branding and avenues for personal sort of extensions and, and opportunities for themselves. Okay, so that set the scene brilliantly. Let's move from the sinister onto the more sparkling elements of the evening. And that's really what we're here to do is this is the Christmas special, not a sort of Halloween special. <laughs> right. uh, I think for me, there are two costumes, but I suppose sort of jewellery pieces that stand out. The first is that worn by Princess Luciana Pinatelli, who wears the $600,000 Schwab diamond and 60 carat, which is suspended curiously from her headdress, which she's borrowed for the evening from jeweller Harry Winston. And what I quite like about this is the motives that have been ascribed to Pignatelli as to why she would wear it on her forehead. She's surrounded by security guards. So again, that's clearly, I suppose, going to be conspicuous. But there are various sort of stories that the sort of women of this festivity are wearing their jewellery to attract the attention of male others, particularly potential husbands, which I think is problematic in terms of that reading but it made it interesting how people are almost in some ways regarded as clothes horses and, and that mm. their sort of bodies are, are just props i know levi in, in talking about this you've got some ideas or thoughts about the oddness if i or the oddity there's a word there oddity is a word oddness is not <laughs> the oddity of wearing jewelry on your forehead or suspended from your forehead yeah you know looking at the theme of the black and white ball and looking at the way most of the guests were dressed you know I, of course I'm trying to like cull through and look at all the jewelry and it just seemed like a lot of people were wearing sort of I don't know everyday pearl drops or big chandelier diamond earrings but to place a diamond on your forehead is really putting it like at the front and center of your face but almost in like this faux third eye sort of way like a mystical sort of way Elizabeth Taylor wore La Peregrina on her forehead not at this party but at, at a different party but it was sort of a, a way to maybe bring even more attention to something that is obviously attention getting like a huge diamond. So yes, that would be like a beacon to men, maybe, <laughs> in the room to come look at her, look at her wealth, look at her, you know, status to be able to procure this sort of jewel on loan. It seems as though people at these events, if you are a bit like, I mean, going back to um, Daisy Fellows and you've got this sort of Cartier necklace that's in your sort of jewellery box, haven't worn it for a few years. It's almost as though trying to find the body parts that you can dangle jewellery <laughs> from. And I, I say that because with Gloria Guinness, she asks, as you might do if you're attending one of these events, the editor of French Vogue, Francois de Langlard, about jewellery. And apparently she is asking the editor, should she wear a diamond necklace or a ruby choker? The response from Langlard is she should wear both. Um, <laughs> right. And the apparent story is that Guinness, draped with jewellery, needs to spend the day following to recover, not because of alcohol consumption, but because she's strained herself wearing all of this. Um, of the weight. Exactly. What a problem to have, right? Uh, no, I mean, <laughs> none of us feel any sympathy. <laughs> 
I love about that is there's this great photo of Gloria Guinness and Bill and Babe Paley sitting at, at a table at the, the black and white ball. And, you know, there's Gloria wearing two authentic diamond ruby necklaces, not one, but two. She's sort of going one way. And then Babe Paley's wearing this also huge, but fake necklace that's costume jewelry. And Gloria Guinness has a quote out there that, that says, I've never worn costume jewelry in my life. It's really very self-defeating. Why should a man buy a woman real jewelry when she wears false pieces? Ooh. And, you know, she's totally right. She's totally right. But, I mean, there's something kind of lovely about nonsense, fake yeah. versions of things in that they are, you know, playful. and. I, I think it depends on, on, on the motive. And it's obviously at an event like this difficult to ascertain. But if you're wearing, I suppose, costume jewellery because you know it's, so say, costume, and it is, as you said, playful, so be yes. it. When we were thinking about the Devonshire Ball, mm. you've got that example of where somebody is mixing diamonds with then costume jewellery to make it look as though they are far wealthier, that their private stash is much greater than what it is. I suppose I possibly have the issue, but of course on an evening like this... Well, as in you think you shouldn't mix, you should either be in one camp firmly or the other. I mean, I don't think there's any way you could you could ultimately tell unless you start sort of grabbing. I believe and, I could tell. Okay. He'd be like, he'd be. I could definitely tell. He'd be like, ugh, trashy. <laughs> but historically, every woman of style of note that everyone knows from the 20th century and 21st century even has mixed costume jewelry with fine jewelry. You've got Coco Chanel, Diana Freeland, Jackie Kennedy. You know, they all had amazing real jewelry collections, but also like Kenneth J. Lane jewelry. And Kenneth J. Lane is probably the biggest, I don't know, the, the sham that made it of the jewelry world and the fashion world because he is probably the most famous costume jeweler out there. He attended the black and white ball. He just had this huge personality. Everyone loved him. He was in with that right crowd to be invited to these things, obviously. But you know, he was quoted by saying that he wanted to make real jewelry with not real materials. So it's the impact is there. It's just not a true Hermes Ruby or D Flawless Diamond. And maybe the people who are attending these sorts of events could care less, especially with the impact of Babe Paley's huge necklace. And do you think the success of that is because of craftsmanship applied to those materials even if the material isn't the most precious in the world or is it about design or is it about both do you think what makes costume yeah. jewelry of that scale successful in a way that you know all of that junk you see on the shopping channel or accessorize or wherever you see that stuff isn't I think the success comes from sort of owning the ridiculousness of it and right. <laughs> and like buying into the fact that you know, if someone's walking down Park Avenue with a Golconda diamond ring versus a CZ, a cubic zirconia ring, who on earth would ever, you know, if you, someone would look at the Golconda and be like, oh, that's fake. Mm -hmm. So at that point, what difference does it make? So it's um, about shamelessly, unapologetically mm -hmm. enjoying the look of that thing without thinking of provenance or... Yes, yes. It's like Kenneth J. Lane was so self-aware of that because in the 1990s, when a monograph came out about his work, it was called Kenneth J. Lane Faking It. So it's, oh, it's, I love that. it's fake it till you make it. And that's his whole mantra of how his business worked, how his clients thought of his work. He was asked by Jackie Kennedy to make a copy of a Van Cleef and Arpels necklace and suite that she had. And he made it and then asked her for the rights to like reproduce it and sell it. And it's still one of the like top selling Ken J. Lane pieces of jewelry. He just passed away recently. He was 85, I think. 
I wonder, is there a sort of moral element here, though? Because I'm just thinking the ball is taking place just as America is getting involved in the Vietnam conflict, which, of course, is hugely criticised within America. And so having an event like this within New York, and indeed the ball is criticised because here you've got these sort of aristos and wannabes playing it away, whilst American soldiers are halfway around the world in a sort of conflict that very few people believe in. So is there a sort of, I, I don't know, that people are maybe wearing costume jewellery because in their way they're being a bit more demure? Well, it's judgment-free, isn't it? It's, As opposed to yeah. million-dollar pieces that necessarily attract attention, but also perhaps criticism because of the lavishness. I yeah. mean, but then you look at Gloria Guinness versus Babe Paley, one wearing two real necklaces, one wearing a fake one. It almost doesn't matter as in yourself you maybe know i think of it as a reverence like just totally blocking out the real world and you know maybe it's a bit ivory tower syndrome but just totally not caring about the world aside from the bubble that they live in yeah i think that's definitely true because there is i can't remember the details too well but there's a story of essentially punters on the street trying to get access to the Plaza Hotel, they do gain entrance, they get a glass of champagne and sort of go and introduce themselves to Truman Capote. They ask for a dance or something. And so he, he, in his cool sort of way, says, yes, I called security to waltz them out of the (gasps) building. Uh. (laughs) So, yeah, I I think think you're right. But that's so funny at this particular event when you think that similarly as invited guests, there are his hosts from Kansas who have been so much part of this very real, like brutally Mm. real multiple murder that's such a strange you know because I think you're right Levi they are all you know they're dancing the night away glittering in either real yeah. or fake diamonds and nothing kind of really matters but then at the center of this scene is what, something yeah, that is, yeah. is really you know horrifying and as and as real as it gets mm, absolutely which is so startling well, to think of them all in the same room together if yeah. you want to bring this completely full circle, it's exactly what's happening in America right now with like Trump's America and the people in the middle of the country or wherever they are who are feeling left behind, but they're decidedly not the disadvantaged parties in America, you know? It's just this weird veil of, I don't even know, just like delusion, I guess. Yeah, and meanwhile, we have to watch, you know, Melania's White House decorated for Christmat while she's walking around her own home in a coat shrobing with the coat. <laughs> on her like, what yes. is that? Nobody's ever done that in your own house. That deserves a whole episode. That's of a whole episode of how to wear a coat. A masterclass by Lucy. I Mason. was thinking of suggesting it as an episode, but I thought, is it really a Christmas episode or is it Halloween? I just wasn't aware. <laughs> we passed that one by, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Dress fancy gets political. <laughs> Oh, we're always political. (laughs) Okay, so on to the final party of the evening. Okay, so we are heading back into Europe. It's a late night flight. We are heading to Paris, or rather just the outskirts of Paris and the Chateau de Ferriers and the Rothschild Ball of 1971. And again, what I think is quite interesting is Beaton is, yet again, I, I suppose in a sense, our guide. This is one of the last costume balls that he attends. He dies in January 1980 at the age of 76. And not surprisingly, he is very critical of this event. It's a private event, although you've still got the great and the good there. But his commentary on it is as follows. And again, I think this is important because it sort of sets the scene. So he begins again in his diary, writing with poison-laced ink. 
<laughs> the Chatsworth Ball was a failure, and the Ferrier's do, although unforgettable as a sight, was altogether exhausting, taking altogether about 12 hours of one's time. And yet, as much as Beaton, I think, is aggrieved by the sort of effort of, of attending these events, nonetheless, a couple of years later, he is in 1971 going to the Ferrier's Ball, and it is a ball that is celebrating Proust which seems quite odd that they're sort of channeling this French philosopher. Equally odd, because Jacqueline de Ribes, who is present, wrote somewhat sort of carpingly that the hostess needed to be schooled for about a month just so that she knew actually who Proust was. And again, I think that suggests something about the disconnect between why these events are held and what the hosts, what the guests think they're getting from it. Beaton attends this festivity in 1971 as the French photographer Nadir. And again, I think quite appropriate for him that he is going as a photographer. So I think his costume, as he conceives it, is very much an extension of himself, or at least he is grafting his position onto a, a famed photographer of the past. And he's at work, isn't he? Exactly, He's yeah. there in a professional capacity. And I think that's probably the reason why he's there. He's yeah. there to take photographs for British Vogue. They're obviously funding the event. So although he's moaning about the previous <laughs> event, you know, it was, oh, what is to do? There is still that sense as there was in 1966 with the Capote Ball. He doesn't want to miss out. Yeah, he's got yeah. fear of missing out. But, but I think, as you said, though, his career is built on people hosting these events. Yeah, I mean, I just don't think he can be... No critical of it whilst also stumping up every time and kind of climbing to, to be honest in reviewing this i'm now thinking gosh is he should he be our patron saint we might have to review this we're for going to year. review it for 2019 <laughs> <laughs> but i think this criticism this sort of doubt that beaton has is most apparent in of course his commentary on the presence on the jewelry that is worn by Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. So before we get to Beaton's view of things, which I think might sort of sour and mar the picture, <laughs> should we give, and give us the beauty before we go to a slightly different view? <laughs> sure. So I love his disdain for, let me just say, first of all. But... Alan, got balance, which is great. <laughs> yes. Well, Elizabeth Taylor, I don't quite know what her look was supposed to be, but to me it reads a little saloon girl, so <laughs> maybe I am a little more in the beaten camp. But she's truly draped in jewelry, as she tended to be. It was said that the only word of Italian that she knew was Bulgari, and she really exemplified that this evening when she wore her emerald and diamond Bulgari brooch in her hair, mixed with some other pieces from Van Cleef and Arpels that were loaned for the night. And she's also wearing a bulgari emerald and diamond bracelet and earrings as well. But I think she's wearing the Taylor Burton pear-shaped diamond at her throat with sort of a velvet ribbon. But it could be the fake that she had made because she did have a copy made of the Taylor Burton diamond because her insurance policy only allowed her to wear it 30 days out of the year. And she always had to be accompanied by multiple armed guards, which, I mean, of course, that would be in your insurance policy if you were Elizabeth Taylor. I just love the idea of, you know, the story behind the Taylor Burton diamond is that Richard Burton was trying to buy it at auction. He lost out to Cartier, who did purchase it. And then he was so furious the next day that he had his lawyers call Cartier and purchase it for, you know, whatever price they were asking anyway. And he gave it to 
Elizabeth Taylor, and it became the Taylor Burton diamond rather than the Cartier diamond. There's a whole story about the naming of this famous diamond. She later sold it before her death and before the auction at Christie's in 2011. But, you know, she's famous for talking about her jewelry as being, she's the custodian of the jewelry. It's going to pass on after her. It's going to have a, another life after her. But she just loved it so much. And it's really this thing about her that's, it can't be separated from what people think about her. She wrote a book called My Love Affair with Jewelry, and that says everything. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, her love affair with jewelry lasted longer than you know, <laughs> any of her marriages, even though they're, it's entirely inseparable, isn't mm. it? The concept of you know her many love affairs and the jewelry kind of sits alongside that. But she also just bought a lot herself, didn't she, as a collector? She did. She wasn't she did. Kind of sitting around waiting to be given stuff. <laughs> no, she would absolutely go and charm the jewelers and there's a David Webb story that she was giving a press conference with Richard Burton on Dr. Faustus or or something some movie they were in together and the press was asking about the jewelry she's wearing at the the press conference and she said oh it's it's by David Webb maybe if I say his name he'll give me a present Wow! I just love everything about her. <laughs> so it's so shameless it's like well, how can I position every moment to be about me getting more which is great. Such a legend. I, 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 in, in the interest of balance, I do think we need to hear from Beaton now. This is a very different view. It isn't a commentary on what Taylor was wearing in 1971. I'm still building up to that. Um, read, <laughs> Sorry, uh, I ruined it. No, no, no. I was going to say, listener, you need to brace yourself. But he says previously this just generally about the Burton-Taylor brand. And I think possibly with some understanding in light of what we've just heard. So he says... I have always loathed the Burtons for their vulgarity, commonness, and crass bad taste. She, combining the worst of US and English taste, he, as butch and coarse, as only a Welshman can be. <laughs> it's just so <laughs> offensive. I think that's why I love them. I've never kind of really, apart from, you know, the Anthony and Cleopatra and stuff, I've never actually watched any of the movies together, which is a terrible thing to admit. So all well, my no, love I, I, of them, actually, As you were saying that, I was thinking, yeah. no, actually, I think I'm in the same boat as you there. So all my love of them as a couple comes from either thinking about the jewellery or actually his diaries, mm. which are amazing. Mm. I mean, obviously the diaries of a drunk, but yeah. they are, <laughs> the way he talks about his love for her, he talks about yeah. her as his eternal one night stand. And they're just magical. These, mm. It's amazing. And so I, I, he's a bit of a drunk hero for me too. Shall I burst that bubble? Go on then. This is Kurt Go on. <laughs> it's the most romantic, toxic relationship ever. Exactly. Agreed. That is the perfect segue. Okay. <laughs> Brace yourself, everybody. Okay. And this is also not particularly festive. So just <laughs> sort of, <laughs> yeah, there's nothing I can say about that. So this is Beaton then commenting on the scene that Levi has just beautifully painted for you. And this is Beaton's description of Liz Taylor as he photographs her for British Vogue at the Rothschild Ball. Her breasts, hanging and huge, were like those of a peasant woman suckling her young in Peru. <laughs> Peru. Lucy's already started. <laughs> Sorry, I'll quieten down. They were seen in their full shape, blotched and mauve, plumb. Round her neck was a velvet ribbon with the biggest diamond in the world pinned on it. On her fat, coarse hands, more of the biggest diamonds and emeralds. Her head, a ridiculous mass of diamond necklaces sewn together, a snood of blue and black pompons and black osprey agrets. 
sausage curls, Alexandre, the hairdresser, had done his worst. And this was the woman who is the greatest draw. In comparison, everyone else was ladylike. I will be honest. What's interesting is if you compare the sort of party party photographs, the sort of casual photographs of her where you can see the full outfit to the more studio posed portrait that Beaton did that night, you can see both halves of that scenario. So, yes, yes, I agree. There's a lot of cleavage there, <laughs> more than perhaps any room needs. And what's do we, do we know scene? what she was supposed to be dressed as? No, I don't think we do. I think she's just like gone a bit bonkers. I mean, it is. It's not a very. No, it's not. It's not a good artifact. Like it, it doesn't really make sense what she's got on. No. But right. then with the way Beaton has posed her, which very deliberately doesn't show any of her cleavage at all. Her arm is right the way across. Yeah. And it just does prove that whilst obviously he's a complete bitch, he is also a master stylist because mm. she does look actually amazing in that photograph. Mm. Whereas in all the kind of sort of, you know, candid portraits from the evening, you can kind of see she does look a bit sweaty yeah. and a bit captive. But you also wonder, I mean, I do about the, the dialogue, the creative tussle that they both had. Taylor knows that she's being immortalised by Beaton. She knows that this is a photograph that's almost certainly going to get into British Vogue. Beaton obviously loathes her, but at the same time is on a job. So you've got people, in a sense, whose reputations, to an extent, are both sort of riding on this photo shoot to a degree. So it's almost as though the professionalness in them both possibly does come to the fore. He talks about that. Again, to quote from portraits and the book that we referenced earlier, he said about taking that portrait on that night. She wanted compliments. She got none. (laughs) (laughs) I asked her to hide her shoulder, lean forward and went forward to this great, thick, revolting mass of femininity in its rawest. (laughs) I mean, he's not into breasts. No. (laughs) (laughs) And don't touch me like that. She whined for a split second. I wondered if I shouldn't say, right, that's enough for tonight. But I felt I must professional to the last ounce of energy and continued but not with anything but disgust and loathing at this monster. And I think the reason I'm feeling so cross about that is just that he doesn't, and you're the expert, Ben, on this, but he doesn't use that level of viciousness when referring even to, to men that he... It's such a misogynist, yeah. women-hating language, and he doesn't I, have the same level of no. viciousness for men. No, I think you're right, because even at this festivity, he talks about the Duchess of Windsor, who is a sort of a friend, as a mad Goya. And those, you know, make for wonderful soundbites to an extent in the 21st century. But, yeah, that that level of vitriol is almost exclusively reserved for the females that he encounters. And I think in part of that, if again, trying to apply a little bit of balance to try and ensure Beaton maintains his mantle as our patron saint. To what extent that's him grappling with his sort of sexuality and his problematic relationship with mm. women generally, I don't know. But I, th- I think you're right. There is nonetheless a sexism, a misogynism that does reveal itself through these comments very clearly. Which isn't just about, although he does talk about hating their vulgarity in the Taylor Burton example, but actually it's not... If we were to conclude about, you know, there being quite a lot of judgment generally levied at the way jewellery and excessive wearing yeah. of jewellery is treated in all of these examples, his doesn't really focus on that particularly, does it? It's as much her physicality in its entirety. 
as the sort of showiness mm. in that. I think it's that he's aware that this is an individual who is trying to impress, is trying to put on a persona. And I think Beaton has a very acute radar for that because in some ways his whole life has been about right. that himself. Yeah. You know, he mm. deep sense his background he regards as being sort of very sort of middle class. He resents the fact that he's not part of the what he perceives to be the real right set that he always wants to get with. So I think that means that he has a, a very sharp antennae for other people who are on the make. Burton yes, okay, yeah. and Taylor and also Capote as well. And I think what the hatred and, and the venting that we see in some ways is also probably what he feels about himself. Right. I think there is something very autobiographical in these remarks, mm. that sort of self-loathing. And that's not me just trying to, to um, appease you or, or trying to get um, beaten back into our good books. But I, I think that, you know, that is a reflection of his very complicated character, which had these really, really ugly sides to it. I feel like it's interesting to think about it from the point of view of Elizabeth Taylor's behavior as well, because it just feels so like typical to me of someone who had been famous their whole life to be really, I don't know, sort of bratty and imperious yeah. and she probably wasn't this dream of a person to be this woman who gets whatever she wants and has the world doting on everything she does. And I don't know, it just seems so overdone. And maybe he was jealous of that. Yeah, I think so. And that fits with my long held theory about there being a connection between people who are national treasures, but who behave abominably. Mm -hmm. at the same. And I will not name any names, but I have some very live personal mm. experiences that back that up. Lucy's not naming names now in a late episode. I'm sure you'll still be. <laughs> please, please do. But it, there is a thing which is you know that you're publicly yes, yeah. adored and therefore you actually behave like a shit to everybody and you encounter. Yeah, exactly. You because you get away with it yeah. and it's really unpleasant. Yeah. Mm. My favourite Elizabeth Taylor story is where he's taken her home to Wales and they're in a working men's club or a pub or, or something and she lets all the women in the pub try on her diamond ring. Love it. Isn't that amazing? Lovely. See? And it's getting its back slightly into the, into the festive <laughs> well, that's more festive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's sort of what I mean about someone who's been famous their whole life. It's like they constantly have to up themselves, right? They constantly have to do better and be more. And for her to, like, have bedecked herself with jewellery her whole life and have these truly, like, one-of-a-kind, top-notch, world-class gemstones and then hand it around, it's like she's trying to share that sparkle that she has with everyone or, or make everyone want what she has. She wore all of her own personal jewelry in movies that she was in. So she totally blurs this line of like, what's herself? What's her true persona? What's her character? Is she playing herself as a character in a movie? Mm -hmm. I don't know. People latch on to these iconographic things of famous people like, like their jewelry. And even with the Taylor Burton diamond, after Richard Burton bought it from Cartier, Cartier put it in their Fifth Avenue window for five days and the public lined up to look at it because they knew that it was going to Elizabeth Taylor on a yacht in five days. To return to that point about the way we use visual cues yeah. and jewellery being a huge part of that to confirm or construct our identity. In the Taylor Burton example, you know, if you took jewellery away from that story, it would be far less compelling mm, for everyone. Right as onlookers and that's not just because it's a lot less sparkly it's because it's so central mm. to and very deliberately constructively central to their story mm. their love affair yeah. and yeah. their careers it's emblematic yeah, yeah. absolutely and i think what that brings me back to is a comment by jacqueline de who 
attended some of the Rothschild balls. She was suddenly at the Bastille ball. I, I don't think she was at the Capote ball. But when she attends the Bastille ball, she's 22 years old. And so all of this world that she's entering into, I think, is very new to her. And she is completely bemused because she says that, I think, having expected this to be a wonderful sort of glittering extravaganza, which she would enjoy, she ends up saying that this was simply a place to be seen at. Mm-hmm. She recognises the visual spectacle, she recognises the skill and, and the craft that's gone into whether it's the clothing in terms of costumes or jewellery, the hairstyling, etc. But you're not really there to enjoy yourself. You're there because you have a particular role within whatever social set you belong to and you perform within that. Mm-hmm. So this isn't actually about the escapism and that you might think of and the ability to express yourself that you might initially think of as a fancy dress extravaganza. This is actually quite choreographed, quite deliberate in terms mm-hmm. of your And I think she finds that quite sad. Well, it is quite sad. And it reminds me of people being honest about things like the Oscars, where mm-hmm. they say, actually, it's a million hours long and I'm starving and it's quite uncomfortable. And in a sense, the best seat is the one sitting at home watching it because it's not in fact as much fun as it's all made out to be, which is all part of the artifice of these grand occasions, I think. I think so, I think so. This has been perhaps my favorite hour of the season and it's also our last episode until 2019. Thank you for joining us for season two. Please do subscribe, share and review us on whichever podcast platform you prefer. All the images we've talked about can be viewed on our Instagram at Dress Fancy Podcast. Thank you to Mark, our editor, and to Levi for his insight and enthusiasm and for being our first ever Dress Fancy special guest. We wish you a very merry holiday and a happy new year. Thank you for listening.